It's on page 81 of your pew Bibles. And as John will speak on later, as as you turn there, you will see in verse 1, the ESV or the NIV both begin with the word the, the Lord. But in the Hebrew, this is called a vayiktol. And as I taught our students in Exodus, there should be an and at the beginning of Leviticus, just as there is in the book of Exodus is that this is a continuation of the story. Leviticus does not make sense without Exodus. Exodus does not make sense without Genesis. So with that said, John will get to that later. But with that said, I'm going to add um, an and, the conjunction beginning of this verse. And the Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or flock or from the flock. If his if his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting that he may be accepted before the Lord and shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord. And Aaron's sons, the priest, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that is the entrance of the tent of meeting. Then he shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. And the sons of Aaron, the priest, shall put the fire on the altar and arrange the wood on the fire. And Aaron's sons, the priest, shall arrange the pieces, the head and the fat, on the wood that is on the fire on the altar. But its entrails and its legs shall be washed with water, and the priests shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. If his gift for a burnt offering is from the flock, from the sheep or goats, he shall bring a male without blemish, and he shall kill it on the north side of the altar before the Lord. And Aaron's sons, the priest, shall throw its blood against the sides of the altar. And he shall cut it into pieces with its head and its fat, and the priests shall arrange them on the wood that is on the fire on the altar. But the entrails and the legs shall wash, be washed with water, and the priest shall offer all of it and, a burnt, and burn it on the, offer, on the altar. It is a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. If his offering to the Lord is a burnt offering of birds, Then he shall bring his offering of turtle doves or pigeons. And the priest shall bring it to the altar and wring it of its head and burn it on the altar. Its blood shall be drained out on the side of the altar and shall remove its crop with its contents and cast it beside the altar on the east side in the places for ashes. He shall tear it open by its wings, but shall not sever it completely. But the priest shall burn it on the altar. On the wood that is on the fire, it is a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. As I reminded you in our announcements this morning for the worship, We are on a journey through the scriptures, going to the different books of the Bible we studied. We usually at Christ's prayer, it's been our habit over the last 
few years to be in one book, like we were in the Gospel according to Luke for three years. When we finished that, uh, we said we were going to systematically begin to work our way through Scripture, looking, going to every book of the Bible, spending two or three sermons in that, in the, that book. We started off with Genesis and then went to Matthew and then we went to Acts. And then we jumped back to Exodus and then to Mark and then to Romans. And now we've come to Leviticus. Um, as I said, I, I, I haven't preached in the book of Leviticus in, uh, I don't think, the eight years that I've been here. And you're probably not used to hearing uh, sermons from the book of Leviticus. And you may have said, and I understand that, you may have said when we, uh, when you saw the scripture this morning, heard it read, you may say, what, what does this have to do with us? Well, you are in for a wonderful blessing this morning. Not because I'm a gifted orator, but because of what's in the book of Leviticus. This is a treasure I really have been looking forward. I can't wait to preach this message. I couldn't wait to get here this morning. Before we look at this passage, let's pray and ask the God who wrote it to teach us and speak to us this morning. Our Father, we bow before you, our maker, our sustainer, and our redeemer. We have, as we said in our invocation this morning, we have no other creator. We have no other, there is no other creator. There is no other sustainer, and we have no other redeemer. Oh, Father, we are here happily in your presence. We're here as your priests, all of us. We're prophets through the week, taking your word out into the community, taking your word out to our families, our neighbors, our schools, our work. Living out your word in that place and we're prophets with a small p. Bringing your word to the world around us. But on this, on the Lord's Day morning, we are priests gathering. We're priests all week. But Father, we are, we gather as a congregation of priests and we bring the world out there before you in prayer. The prophet goes out to speak to the world with a word from God. The priest comes before you with the world. And this morning, Father, we do pray for the world around us. We see a world in panic. We see an irrationality around us. We pray that you would bless us with that love, that joy, and that peace of the indwelling Holy Spirit and cause us to be a testimony of calm, of peace, of joy to the world around us. Not that we take what's happening in a cavalier way. No. Our Father, we pray that the world will see our compassion and our care. But Father... Remind us of your sovereignty. Remind us that we're held in your omnipotent, nail-scarred hands. Remind us that we stand upon your word and cannot 
be shaken. We pray that Psalm 62 would become a theme for us. That you are our God and you're our fortress and we cannot be shaken. Bless us in this way. Cause Christ Presbyterian to be a real testimony. As we live out your peace and your calm in the world in which we live. Our Father, we do pray for the members of this congregation, young and old, that, Father, you would keep us from this virus, from this pestilence. We pray that, Father, you would keep us that we may not have it, that you would keep us, that if we do have it, that, Father, we would be healed from it, and that we would exhibit even then a peace and a calm. We pray for Fayette County for the Mid-South region, for Memphis. That you will bring a sanity. That you will bring a calm. Not because we've got control, but because we're in your hands. Father, remind your church all through the Mid-South of your sovereignty and of your power, your omnipotence. We pray, Father, for our own members who are more susceptible. We pray that you would protect them in a special way. We pray this morning for Charles Dawkins, Father, that you would bring healing for Robert Gardner's father that in Louisiana he would be able to have this surgery that's needed and that surgery would accomplish what needs to happen for him to continue his life in good health. We pray for Claire Reddit and Ray Lynch that you would bring healing to their eyes. Our Father, now we ask that you would teach us. Our Father, so many of us are away today, spring break, with fears about gathering with this disease about. But Father, you're here, and we've come to hear your word. We pray that we will clearly hear it. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Give us a mind to understand and a heart that believes. For the glory of Christ, we pray. Amen. The blood of the Lamb. Have you ever been in a thunderstorm and seen lightning close by and not heard thunder? You say, John, that's impossible. If you see lightning close by, you are going to hear Thunder, thunder must follow lightning. Well, just so 
Leviticus must follow Exodus like thunder follows lightning. Think about it. Exodus is primarily about God giving the law to Israel. You know that. It's the home of the Ten Commandments. In Leviticus, God is saying to to Israel, Israel, you have a law that you cannot possibly keep. You need an altar. You need a sacrifice. In Exodus, another theme of Exodus is not only the law of God, it's the building of the tabernacle. What was in the tabernacle? What was in the door? If you had walked in the door, the first thing you would see, what was it? It was that altar. They had an altar for sacrifices. Exodus is about God giving the law and God, the Israel building a God-designed tabernacle and altar. In Leviticus, he's saying, you can't keep the law. You need a sacrifice. You need an altar. In Exodus, you have an altar built. In Leviticus, you learn how to sacrifice. You learn what the sacrifices are. Remember that how does Exodus end? Exodus ends with the glory of the Lord falling on the tabernacle. We looked at that in our study in Exodus. Look at Exodus 40, 34 through 35. It's on your scripture sheet. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. That's the end of Exodus. And how did Leviticus begin? Tyler told you. Some translations, like the ESV that we use here, just begins, and God, or it doesn't say and, it says God called. God spoke. The actual Hebrew reads, and God spoke. Then God spoke. It's connecting Leviticus to what happened to the last verses of Exodus. You know, maybe as you read that, you thought like I thought as we as we heard Tyler read from Leviticus 1. Maybe you thought, that's gory. That's bloody. I thought all week, I spent the weekend just looking at it. I thought, wow, I'm glad I live in the New Testament. You know, just think about it. We In, in building a church building, we would have built an altar. And you would have brought animal, you would have brought an animal to be sacrificed. And I would have helped you prepare that and then help you slay that. That would be a bloody thing to do, wouldn't it? What why? Why was all that? I heard over and over again from my liberal professors in seminary, I heard, well, this is primitive. It's a primitive view of God. It, you know, it's we're past that. Let me tell you, what we read this morning is profound. It's has a theological depth that no one has ever fathomed. So we're going to look at it this morning. And in the end. I think you'll stand in wonder 
at what God was doing and what God has done. So what did God say to Israel after they had the tabernacle, after they had the altar? As he spoke about the sacrifices, what did he say? First, I want you to see an appropriation of the sacrifice. Look at verse 4. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make an atonement for him. That sacrifice was not a general sacrifice for all the people of Israel. There was a sacrifice. We'll see it later in Leviticus if we go there. There was a general sacrifice for the whole nation. That's not what this was. The sacrifice was personalized. It had one man's name written on it. It was personalized as a man laid his hands on the animal and confessed his sins. He was ceremoniously transferring his sins to the animal. The way he appropriated the sacrifice to himself was to personally identify with the sacrifice through confession and repentance. It was not enough to say, people, it was not enough to say, I believe I need a sacrifice. I've read the law. I think I need a sacrifice. It was not enough to say that you, to say, I'm a sinner and I need a savior. There was a definite act a definite act of leaning your weight on the sacrifice and confessing your sin. Many church members today or many people around the church will say, I believe the Bible generally. I believe the Bible. I, I agree that I'm in need. They, we may even believe that, that Christ is indeed the Son of God, the Savior of sinners. But that doesn't save us. People like that lack one thing. They've never actually appropriated the sacrifice of Christ for themselves. They've never personally leaned their weight upon the sacrifice and confessed their sin. This is my sin. This is my Savior. They've never done that publicly. One week before Jesus was crucified, he was leaving Jericho on his way up to Jerusalem. As he was leaving Jericho, two blind men heard that Jesus of Nazareth was close by. They didn't, couldn't see. They didn't know where, but they just heard he was close by. There was this crowd passing by. They were blind. They had heard about this Jesus of Nazareth. He made blind people see. So they began to cry out loud, Jesus. Son of David, have mercy on us. Son of David, have mercy. Now begin to cry out. Now the crowd must have been made up of Presbyterians because the crowd said, be quiet. We don't do things like that. You know, easy. And they cried all the more. They were blind. And Jesus heard them. And Jesus came to them, had him brought them. He said, what do you want? They said, we want to see. And he instantly made them see. He healed them. Now, some around the church are like those two blind men in one way. They have heard of Jesus. They know he's close by. They know something of what he did. But they are unlike these blind men in one glaring way. They do not cry out publicly. They don't lean their weight upon him and say, I'm a sinner. I need a Savior. Heal me. People to die of thirst when there is not water, that's no shame. 
But to die of thirst when there's water to be had is a shame beyond explanation. I've got to ask you. Have you publicly appropriated, the, genuinely appropriated the sacrifice of Christ to yourself? That's the first thing God says. Second thing. I want you to see the availability of the sacrifice to everyone. Look at the third verse. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting that he may be accepted before the Lord. Look at verse 10. If his gift for a burnt offering is from the flock, from the sheep or goats, he shall bring a male without blemish. Verse 14. If his offering to the Lord is a burnt offering of birds, then he shall bring his offering of turtle doves or pigeons. Three different animals are listed. A bull from the herd of cattle, a ram from the flock of sheep, or a young pigeon. Why these three? The wealthy could bring a bull from their herd. Those who weren't that wealthy could take a ram from their flock of sheep. Those who were poor, who had neither a herd or flock, could bring a pigeon. No one could say I can't afford to go to the tabernacle because I can't afford a sacrifice. I can't afford to go to the altar because I can't afford a sacrifice. So it is with Christ. Do you see it? The wealthy cannot buy his sacrifice. There's no money they can buy. And he is Freely available to the poor. Way back here. Way back then. He's looking forward to Christ. It's not that you, everyone has to bring a bull because then some people couldn't come. Even if it was only a lamb, some people couldn't bring that, but they could bring the bride. They have billability of the sacrifice to everyone. In the churchyard, in the English church is an inscription of a gravestone. You know, I'd love to, to walk through a cemetery and read what people have put on their gravestone. It, it says volumes. And in this, in this, the older the cemetery is, the better. This was in an 18th century cemetery where they were burying people in the 18th century. And it gave this woman's name her birth date, her death date, and then it said on the tombstone, this is what she chose, she was the cousin of the Duke of Bedford. Imagine putting that on your tombstone. Do you suppose God will be impressed? Can't you just see her being announced into God's presence? Make way for the cousin of the Duke of Bedford. People. It's not for the cousin of the Duke of Bedford. It's not for the wealthy. It's for the employer and the employee, the rich and the poor, the educated, the uneducated, the CEO and the janitor. They all come by the same bloody sacrifice by way of the same bloody sacrifice. It's available to all. It was looking forward to Christ. Dr. Wilson Carlisle was a well-known minister in the Anglican Church, in the Church of England. He found an organization, founded an organization inside the Church of England called 
the church army. It was something like the Salvation Army. Uh, it was called the church army, and they worked in the slums of the cities of England. When King Edward was in the final stages of his of an illness that would eventually take his life. He invited Dr. Carlisle to come see him. Just weeks before that, he had decorated Dr. Carlisle for all of his, his work with the poor, with the slums. When Carlisle entered the bedroom of King Edward, the king greeted him. Well, Carlisle, how are your tramps? And before Carlisle could answer, the king continued. Never forget, Carlisle. Kings and tramps must have the same Savior. He understood the appropriations of the sacrifice, the availability of the sacrifice. Hear this. I'm going to see, keep saying it over and over again. The whole Old Testament, even though we initially don't look at that and say, well, here's a book of prophecy. It's not the, it's not the prophet Isaiah or the prophet Jeremiah. It's not a book like that. But you can't read scripture without seeing Jesus Christ. In depths that we still haven't seen, Leviticus is a prophecy of the Savior, the sacrifice of the Lamb that was coming. The appropriation of the sacrifice, the availability of the sacrifice. Thirdly, I want you to see the annihilation of the sacrifice. This gets bloody. Leviticus 1, 5 through 7. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord. The, and Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and throw the blood on the si against the sides of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Then he shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. And the sons of Aaron, the priests, shall put fire on the altar and arrange the wood on the fire. The person bringing the sacrifice is given a graphic picture of God's judgment on sin. He ceremoniously, this is the man, the individual, ceremoniously put his sin on the sacrifice. And because of that sin, the sacrifice was annihilated. When our sin fell on Christ, what happened? The judgment of God fell on him. What did he cry out? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus had never prayed a prayer like that. Never. Time after time after time, the Israelite bringing the sacrifice saw this picture. From his childhood, from his infancy, he remembered to, to his old age. He saw it hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times. Time after time, the image was set in his mind. I symbolically put my sin on the animal. And that animal is slain, torn apart, and burned. This is one reason why Jesus gave us the Lord's Supper. The bread is torn, broken. Why? His body was torn. His body was broken. Now, some people object to that because the scriptures are very plain that no bone was broken. The Old Testament prophesied that none of his bones would be broken. They weren't broken. None of the bones were broken. That was something that was unique about his crucifixion. Usually, the legs were broken in the crucifixion, to hasten their death. But his were not broken. But 
when we say his body was broken, we don't refer to, we're not referring to his bones. We read in Isaiah that he was crushed for our iniquities. That's what we mean. His life was broken. His life was crushed. That's what the bread symbolizes. What does the wine symbolize? The blood of Christ. That's why we use a red wine or grape juice. Red. It's the blood of the Lamb. Why? Because His blood was shed for us. See, we go back to the book of Leviticus. It's about the Lord's Supper. It's a prophecy. And we look back this way. That's why we go back to Leviticus. That's our heritage. When Judah took his young son Benjamin to the temple, as they left, Judah could say to his son, Son, did you see that animal was slain and burned? Son, that was what God's judgment will do to sinners. Don't you forget it. When we hear the account of the death of Christ in the scripture on the Lord's day, we can say to our children, Did you hear Jesus cry out on the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's what the judgment of God does to the sinner. We can say to our children, when we say the words of the Apostle Creed, he descended into hell. Child, do you realize that when Christ died, God's judgment fell on him. That's what he descended into hell means. God's judgment fell on him. You look at Leviticus and you see the appropriation of the sacrifice, the availability of the sacrifice, the annihilation of the sacrifice. Finally, you see, fourthly, the atonement of the sacrifice. Look at verse 4. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make an atonement for him. Why was the sacrifice offered? So that the sinner may be accepted before God. Couldn't God just say, well, that's my child. He's accepted. Why must there be a sacrifice? There doesn't need to be a sacrifice. I can just accept him. I am so glad we were in Romans two weeks ago. If you weren't here two weeks ago and heard the message, why didn't God just forgive Jesus? Go back and listen to it. It will be one of the most important messages you hear, not because, again, you were hearing a great preacher. The Holy Spirit blessed that day with a great, great message from Romans 3, 25 through 26. Why did the sacrifice have to be made? Because the justice of God had to be satisfied. That's what we dealt with two weeks ago in Romans. We ask the question, when our sin fell on Jesus, why couldn't God just say to Jesus, I forgive you of their sin which fell on you? God didn't say that to Jesus. God didn't say, you're my children, that's their sins, really not yours, so I'm, no, that sin was imputed to him. He became the sinner. And God crushed him. And it was his only son. He crushed him under his judgment. Why? Why? Because God is just. We sang this morning of the love of God in giving us a Redeemer. 
We love the subject, the love of God. God loves us. God loves us. God loves us. People, his justice is just as great as his love. His justice. Is just as powerful as his love. When he loved us, he didn't say, well, I'm no longer a God of justice. We saw in that sermon, that in that message, in that scripture, we saw that we love justice. We love it. We don't want to live in an unjust county, an unjust city. We don't want to live where the criminal goes free. And the judges treat Sin or street transgression and crime as a cavalier thing. We would not tolerate that. And yet we want a God. Oh, please don't have justice. All of scripture speaks to us of the justice of God. Go back to Romans 3, 25 through 26. Look at it this morning in light of Leviticus. Look at it in light of the sacrifice. Look at it. I'm going to read it to you right now. It's on your scripture sheet. Christ Jesus, Romans 3, 25. Christ Jesus whom God put forth as a propitiation. Tyler, what's propitiation mean? Removal of sin. sin. It means removal of sin. It means satisfaction. The word propitiation means satisfaction. God was satisfied. God's justice has to be satisfied. He was set forth as as, as a satisfaction by his blood. To be received by faith. It was to show his righteousness. Whose righteousness? God's righteousness. See, we want righteousness for us. We want to be declared innocent. But we want God to be guilty. Guilty of being unjust. Just forgive us our sin. We don't need a sacrifice. Read this verse. It was to show God's righteousness at the present time so he might be just in the justifier. That he might look at John Sartell, that he might look at you, that he might look at Tyler and say, you're innocent. Even though we know we've committed sins, even though we know we're guilty, he declares us innocent. Why? Because our sin has fallen on Jesus. He is just. He just can't say, well, you're my child, so I'll let you go free. Propitiation, satisfaction, God's justice has to be satisfied. In Leviticus 1.9, there's a strange verse. Maybe it bothered you. Let me explain it. Look at Leviticus 1.9. And the priest shall burn all of it on the altar, annihilate it as a burnt offering, a food offering, with a pleasing aroma to God. Now, when somebody's barbecuing in the neighborhood, we smell it. So I believe I'm going to go visit my neighbor. We like the we like the smell. We like the aroma. Is that what that verse is saying? That God's up in, that God's saying, "Oh, what a wonderful smell." No, no. The verse means God's justice is being satisfied. God is pleased that the price has been paid. It's not talking about his sense of smell. It's talking about his sense of justice. And he could only be pleased. He could only be satisfied if a true and genuine sacrifice had fully paid the debt, had fully satisfied the justice. That animal didn't do it. Even the people of Israel understood. One day God would come 
with the true, the genuine Lamb of God. Those lambs, those bulls, those birds were only symbols. People, this is a book of prophecy. Every verse is prophetic about what Christ would do. He could not say to his own son, that's my son, when the sin's laid on him. I just can't forgive him. I would not be just. We're his children. We've been born again. Wouldn't that be enough that God would send his spirit and change our sinful hearts? And cause us to love him that we love him and he loves us. Isn't that enough? No. It's not enough. Justice. His justice. Had to be satisfied. He couldn't look upon his own son when the sin fell upon him and say, I just forgive you. He can't look upon us when he transforms us into his children to say, I forgive you. There was a holy of holies in the tabernacle. And later it was in the temple. In the holy of holies resided the ark of the covenant. The ark represented the presence of God. It represented fellowship with God, acceptance of God. But there was a huge curtain, a great curtain that separated the holy of holies from the rest of the tabernacle and then the temple. By the time of Jesus, this curtain had grown to 60 feet height. Thick, this thick veil. And only one person could go behind that curtain. The high priest. And he could only go once a year. He went on the day of atonement. He went behind the curtain. What happened when Jesus was on the cross? When the sacrifice was made? When Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What happened? He died. The veil of that temple, the veil of that curtain in the temple was rent from the top to the bottom. Wasn't rent from the bottom to the top. They would say man did. It was rent from the, heard this great roar through the temple. And the curtain was torn. The true sacrifice had come. The Lamb of God had been offered. The Lamb that God brought had been offered. And he had gone to the real Holy of Holies to make an atonement. It was done. No more Holy of Holies. We don't have one in this church. No more sacrifices. No more bulls. No more rams. No more lambs. No more birds. The reality had come. The true sacrifice, the true atonement had been made. Maybe you, maybe you look at these sacrifices in old Israel. And you say what my professors said, unbelieving professors. That's primitive. That's passe. That's antique. We're modern. We don't do things like that. They would never preach in the book of Leviticus. 
Don't you dare go there. If that thought appears in your mind, it's straight out of hell. It's satanic. Satan would love to destroy the cross. He would love to destroy the meaning of these sacrifices. What we read today is filled with theological truth. It shouts to us that God is holy. God is just. And in great love, he has satisfied that justice with the sacrifice of his own son. God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Primitive? Let me tell you, when we've been home 10,000 years, we still will not have fathomed the depth of the first chapter of the book of Leviticus and the cross. Stop this day and think about what God is saying to you. Our hymn is most appropriate. It's a great gospel hymn.